a Podcast One production. Hello and welcome to A Plate to Call Home. I'm Gary Megan and before we begin today's episode, I just wanted to say that if you like listening to these conversations and you enjoy the show, give it a rating. I love hearing from you and every review really does help, honestly. Okay, now on with the show. What can I say about Nigella Lawson? We all love her style and we love her recipes and I was lucky enough to spend some time chatting with her about her and her life and her philosophy. We recorded this in my little trailer at the MasterChef studios in between our shooting schedule and I can't thank Nigella enough for spending a bit of time with me. We've split this episode into two halves, so I hope you enjoy part one of my chat with the wonderful Nigella Lawson. So we're backstage at MasterChef and this we is are. your second visit. My second proper visit. Proper visit. Remember I made a fleeting visit once Many moons ago. in Sydney. That's right, you did a... And I was sort of, I came in, I came out, I didn't know where I was, what was happening. Um, I think it was when I was doing the... 2003, something like that. Oh, it was a long time ago, yeah. yeah. We didn't really get a chance to chat, any of us, the three judges and yourself. It was very fleeting. And you were you were in a bit of a grumpy mood one day, Gary. I hate to I say it. I can't believe it. And not I'm not you usual were for me. In a bit like that, and you did that. But then I saw you, <laughs> Malcolm, and you were being so lovely to one of the contestants, who obviously was having a bit of a. Um, no, I wouldn't go as far as to say a meltdown, but suddenly needed something. And you'd said because he hadn't done particularly well in a particular challenge, and you went there, and you were so calmly went and kindly. Um, all that grumpiness that maybe sometimes you put on to tease the boys left you and you were just explaining to him, look, this is where you went wrong and next time you do it, just bear these things in mind. And I think that's what makes the show special. Yeah. And it, I was very touched because I hadn't seen that side of you, you see, because you were being a bit... Yeah. Well, Nigel Lawson was on um, set. And, um, and it was really lovely to see and I think that's what really makes a difference because anyone can think of something that's, you know exciting because it is always going to be exciting and it's always going to feel a bit uh, tense but in order to get the best out of the contestants that's got to be I think you know partnered with a sense when they feel really that no one's sitting around tap tap tapping their foot waiting for them to fail yeah. it's like you really want them to do well it has to ring true and if it doesn't ring I, true no, if it doesn't ring true it doesn't work you know I think that's that's actually the case with TV anyway of course um, there is, in many ways, that well, TV is. And I would say to people, TV is entirely artificial. You know, because you can see that you give someone a challenge that's sixty minutes. Yes, they do it for sixty minutes. What's shown on, you know, you it would have to be non-stop on. If you, you have to cut it, everything has to be pared down. And obviously, there is an there's an editor's eye going in there. So it's artificial. And of course, you know, like as you know, the minute it stops, someone there taking any creases out of your clothes. It's all not like it is in real life, but what television is as well is a great phoniness detector. You can, it might have artifice, but you've got to be who you are. Mm. And generally speaking, if people who try and be something else, it doesn't work. Ha and you can see that with the contestants too, Has that their characters come out who they are and it comes out in their food. And, and I think in a way what's good is that because you film such a lot, they have time, I would have thought, pretty soon to forget about the cameras. Mm. So has this been the secret to your success? I don't know. It's, I always think it's quite dangerous to try and analyse or become self-conscious. I think, in a way, what has really helped 
and I suppose when I started, is that I represent the home cook. Yeah. Because when I started, there were an awful lot of professionals on TV, and they're great, and you know, I, you know, I admire professional chefs, but, and I'm incredibly cack-handed, you know, when, I, when I'm chopping, I mean, you know, I mean, talk about zero knife skills. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't think I'd get on to MasterChef, to be honest. Uh, but the thing is, is that I do know about flavour and I, I make the most of my um, lack of dexterity. And I, and I do think about how to get flavour into food and texture is very important. And I, we can all, you don't need to be an expert to cook. You know, I would say to people, if we needed be an expert or a qualification to cook, we'd have, human beings would have fallen out of the evolutionary loop yes. a long time ago. Now, and that's not to say we can't learn, and actually I always get quite inspired coming on MasterChef to see mm. how much the home cooks have taught themselves or have, um, you know, set themselves a task of learning, you know, techniques which they would not have known naturally. So, so I think maybe it's just the fact that I am a home cook and I am doing food that is accessible and the fact that I'm genuinely enthusiastic. Yeah. What I was think. that first show? Can you, can you remember the first like, day on set, well, for example, on that really show? it was really weird. So when I was asked to do, I'd done TV before in my previous life as a journalist. I had done kind of like political talking heads and you know, like question time and that sort of thing. And I had done a book programme and I'd also, you know, I'd done various, you know, various bits of TV. But when, when my first book came out, they said, you know, would you do a TV show? And I sort of thought, really not. And especially as a young journalist, I'd always thought, I don't mind radio and I don't mind print, but ugh, I don't want to go into TV. But in the end, I What was that said, reluctance, though? What, I think why, why as the a young woman in particular, I think I felt very important for me to make up my career out of my you know, mind and the words I was using rather than it being about what I look like. And I think for women, there is an awful lot of mm. pressure on that. So I think that's what it is. And also, I don't particularly like cameras. It's very odd that I've, I mean, I'm the, I'm the shyest <laughs> of the family. It's quite odd that I, that's yeah. what I've done. But then I film in such ways that I'm never really aware of the camera. But anyway, so I, they said, well, you know, can you do, um, I think about whether you would do a programme and in the end, and my children were very little and at the time my first husband had terminal cancer so I didn't really want, you know, I, did, I didn't want to be out of the home so I said it has to be done at home. I mean I don't do it at home anymore but I started off, it has to be done at home and um, I won't be scripted and actually it was quite amazing because someone who's got no experience but I mean the sound man used to like put his head in his hands because because I did it at home I was always opening and shutting drawers very noisily you know trying <laughs> rattling about and not kids around in the background flushing well, toilets and things like that there were a lot of that but they were quite little and they were <laughs> yeah like that you know oh he punched me <laughs> and um but we had a bit of a laugh and actually it was quite nice and you know the director also had small kids because I remember once I rather smugly did this thing it was when my son was about I don't know how old he was two and a half three yeah. and um, we were filming and I said and, and this is how you get you know, your children to eat vegetables and he put it in his mouth and he just spat it spat out, it out. Brilliant. and um, the director obviously left it in <laughs> I love oh, it. Damn, is that... So in a way, it's always it had a bit of that, and then after a while, I didn't do it at home. It's very difficult because. Um, but what was? Can I know, just stop you for a yeah. second? What was what was the cha the challenge of coming up with recipes for a cooking show that you seemed to be at the time fairly reluctant to do, but, but, and then the yeah. pressure of because yeah. I, I sense that when you 
make recipes for us here that that you still have that doubt oh, in your mind that yes. it's good enough or yeah, like why get... is that you're Nigella Lawson everybody at home's looking you go but you know everything but I don't you see and that's the thing I feel expectation is quite a difficult thing because however much you say I'm not an expert I'm not a technical person um, people think you're being modest and I'm not now I know how to cook but I couldn't do um, couldn't I couldn't turn out 50 identical desserts. They'd all be quirkily different. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, if you, I wouldn't know exactly, I mean, if you asked me to fillet a fish, you'd have to, you, you'd start sobbing noisily. Yeah. And you'd have to go lie down in a dark room. So would I, for that matter. And, <laughs> and um, but that's why you always say, and your fishmonger can do this. Yes. So yeah. you're really putting it. Yes, into I can the give people. I can a, give people directions on how to spatchcock a chicken. I can do that. Oh, there you go. How come you know that and not how to fillet a fish then? Because it's quite. Because e it's quite easy, and I use a pair of scissors. <laughs> I I, do you know? And every now and then, because I'm quite interested, and I adore my fishmonger, and um, every now and then I feel like oh, I'm going to learn, and I think don't ruin it. So don't, you better not. Don't get a skill now. Yeah, and start filleting <laughs> fish on TV, and you'll blow everybody's perception out oh, no, of the water. No, it's not just that, but anyway, I don't know. I am quite impatient. I can do things. I often think I can't, and I can. And I feel also you may, you sort of have to use your. Sometimes what you think is a weakness can be a strength because yeah. you think of ways around it. And in the same way as like I often say to the contestants here, a lot of my best recipes come out of making a mistake. Yeah. And then I think, mm, dear, how can I make this better? And actually it makes you think more creatively. And I think it's very important to be able to think on your feet in the kitchen yeah. because it, you can't just you know make it all up before. I don't make my recipes up like that. I don't sit and write them out, I'm cooking, and I think, well, that was nice, but then oh, next time I'm going to add a bit more cumin, or that was a mistake. Because, you know, I often just think I'm, you know, don't add any more water, and I get impatient, I'm bothered away, add a bit more water, it's ruined, have to do it again. So I, I'm constantly reminding myself of the need uh, to trust your instincts, because if I really get, if I've made a mistake, because I've overridden my instincts I'm really cross with myself if I make a mistake but as it were it's a genuine mistake that's fine I can accept it and I think that would be the same if I were a contestant here yeah. that it's very annoying um, but then people trust you know, your recipes don't they they have to they I trust really, your recipes I you've test, tried them you've test, tested them they are and if they're baking um, they're just they're tested so often and I get them tested in an, someone else does it in another oven yeah. because ovens vary such a lot and so often it and my you know if someone's got a fast oven I can try and some so sometimes I might say it takes 55 uh, to an, minutes to an hour and then I will change it a bit because someone you know like friends of mine I give it to friends of mine who can cook too so and, and like a friend of mine's got an oven that always cooks everything faster and do they tell you me. the truth they yep. go no it didn't cook in 35 no, they, minutes? They, or... No, they often, but I find a lot of people's ovens run hot. It's more likely they've cooked before the time. Yeah. I so think. where do your ideas come from? I mean, how many cookbooks have you written now? How many recipes have you written now? I have never counted the number of recipes, but I have I have written 11 books, which is... 11 books. That's a lot. So that's a lot of ideas, a lot of inspiration. I always think I'm never going to get another idea. I always think that's it. That's, that's it. it. I'm Done. never going to do it. I can't do it anymore. But then I do, and I think it's because I still love eating. So I'm still thinking about what I'm going to eat. So you always work and always playing? So when you're out to a restaurant, you go, well, that's a good idea. Yes, and I think... And oh, you remember yes. it? I do remember it, and sometimes I just think there is no way I would do it, it's much too fancy, but I'll take elements of it that I like. And I think 
to be honest, often the way that most recipes start, well, there is, I suppose there are th three different reasons, and greed is always the most basic because I'm always thinking, what can I eat? Mm. But especially on Monday, I always do my kind of fridge clear out at the beginning of the week, and I've got things you know that are left behind, and you know, I think oh, I better use these up. And sometimes, and I love it, I love the fact that I'm just free flow, and mm. I use up what I've got, I call it a fridge forage. And so the Monday fridge forage is always one of my favorites. Yes. If it's in the fridge, eat yes, it. Yes, exactly. And I think we all, you know, we yeah. always have, uh, I think those of us who like cooking love cooking that way. And I often say to people, like, with the, it's so difficult because I want people to obey my recipes. But if it's um, a savoury one, like a stew, I often say, well, you know, I use two carrots and three leeks because that's what I had in my fridge. But, you know, actually add another carrot if you want. Yeah. Don't worry if you've only got two leeks. Now, and where you can't do that is baking. And that's, I, I started baking much later on in my life than I started cooking. I cooked, or I cooked from a very young it. age. I cooked, you know, from... <clears throat> I don't know. Six. And it seems to suit your personality, the way you're talking now, yeah. like cooking and adding things just because it's in the fridge. Yeah, but so how the transition, baking, because um, you'd be the queen of surely the kitchen and baking. That's what people look at you and go, best chocolate cake in the world, but you best know brownie. What? I'll tell you what happened. I never, I, I, when I grew up, until I was quite old, I thought there were cooks and there were bakers and they were separate. And when I did my first book, How to Eat, I wanted to do all the basics. So I kind of taught myself to bake and bake pastry and I thought, what a bloody scam. This is easy. All the people who bake act like it's so hard. And it isn't, if, because actually what's difficult about cooking is timing everything so you get everything out on the table altogether. Right. When you bake, I mean, obviously not if you're, uh, you know, a uh, uh, sort of Michelin star uh, patisserie. Pastry chef. But, but other, you know, when you've got ma massive elements, but like a cake or something or cookies, it's really very, very simple. And I did a, so I, I did a bit of baking with my kids when they were little because um, I, I'm not very athletic and, you know, no, no surprise. And so, like, I never want to go run in the park and all that. So I'd say, um, should we do baking? You know, should we just bake something instead so I didn't have to do running around? And, um, and I like that. They loved doing that. Because you had a, uh, you've got a boy and a girl. Yes, so you had and a, they loved at that. At the time, how old would they have uh, been? When I, when, when I suppose, um, my first book came out in 98, but I was carrying on and I was, but I did my, and they were born in end of 93, in the middle of 96. Okay. So they're still so that's why, and they were, they were teeny at the yeah. time. And then I carried on, I was doing my baking book after I'd, so what happened was, it's just they were very, very small, like two and four or something, yeah. when I was doing a lot of baking. And they, you know, it's just, if you've got two children, it's a nightmare to do a recipe with one egg. The rows about who gets to crack the egg. Oh, I remember those. Um, <laughs> and it's when people say, do the old children help you cook? And I say, not, he mm. I'm not help. See, the idea of cooking with children sounds lovely, but when you look it's, at the mess... Oh, no, it's completely... You've it's got a to disaster. Oh, God, the, everyone's covered in flour. I think I remember doing one children's cooking class and vowed yeah. never, ever again uh, it's, cook with any other children other than your own no it is i've done it actually i i have done some class and i love it but um i, I think it is incredibly messy you just got to go with that but so what happened was is that i got so suddenly um evangelical about baking and how easy it was and it for me it was something so new and um i wanted to write a book about baking and at that time no one baked it was 
pre-order and it was like no I mean there's no market here and I said that's the book yeah. I want to do and I called it as a joke how to be a domestic goddess um, which you know, I always have to remind people was meant to be a joke um, because as my husband wrote at the time that I was no domestic goddess, he'd see me go around the house in the dressing gown with some sort of dirty socks in the pocket, and then I blow my nose on a you know old sock. Sorry, <laughs> and uh, and you know like I can't do anything. I'm really I'm so slovenly you can hardly believe it. But nevertheless, I did you know I do like baking, and I and I think it was really good because because I was writing for myself. I was writing recipes from the perspective of someone who wasn't confident baking. Now, of course, I've baked enough and I bake quite a lot and I find it um, oh, I love it I mean as I wrote in the book that I think there's something about human beings that we all have a slight a fantasy of transformation um, and I think that's why all those self-help books sell so well uh, because everyone does believe in that and I, th although I love cooking when you cook you can really tell by the ingredients um, what is, I mean, you know, the, all the, if, you know if you've got onions, um, stewing beef, red wine, carrots, mushrooms, when they're raw, you've, you, can, you have some idea what it's going to taste like. But this extraordinary thing that happens, this magic, when you whisk, you know, eggs, sugar, you know, butter and flour together. Yeah. And it really is, that's why we say that baking is like a mixture between poetry and chemistry. So you've got to be so precise, except what happens is this alchemy and I think that I love that and I still that, enjoy it. That's what it gets I think listening to you and I was going to say alchemy because I love mm. making sauces mm. and, now, and I always talk about this alchemy and adding mm. a list and a little of that and turning something you know mm. into something extraordinary something very ordinary mm. into the extraordinary and maybe that's where people get scared about baking because all yeah. of a sudden it gets fancy and they go I, alchemy hang on a minute I was just following a recipe. I know you but know? I think that and I was hearing um the divine Yotam Ottolenghi talking about this recently, which is that, in a way, it is easier with baking in some respects for people because if someone's written their recipe properly, if you obey it, It'll it's going to work. Yeah. And I'm not saying that when you cook, that doesn't happen too, but there are more variables. I think the results can be wider. Yes. You know, there's... T so many variables, because, sweet, sour, salt. But it's not just know. that, is that when you write a recipe that's a baking recipe, you know if people are baking it, everyone's using the same size tin. You cannot be that didactic in a cooking recipe because you can't really expect people to go and buy a different size saucepan. They're going to use the saucepan they got. Yeah. So everyone's going to use slightly, and the saucepan's going to be made out of slightly different material. Yeah, it's going to be a thick base, it's a thin be, base. Uh, for so, example, yeah. for, uh, I keep some of my tins, um, uh, my roasting tins, in a drawer that I pull out that hits the outside. So they're quite cold, it drives me mad if I forget to take them out in time. And that affects everything you do. Whereas it, generally speaking, you, with, with, a, with a cake tin, you've got everything out beforehand, because yep. it says that in the recipe. The everything should be at measurable one temperature. And easily measurable. It's, so I think, I mean, what I think is terrible is when things do not work, because you, can, you know, I know sometimes I can read a recipe and I think, no one's tried that. Hmm. You know, it's, like when, it's like when people say about in a recipe, um, cook the chickpeas for 35 minutes. You think, in what world? Yeah. You know, and I think that is bad. So I'm very, very strict about it. And I get, if someone says to me, oh my, a recipe didn't work, and it always does, and I just, then you ask a question, and there'll nearly always be um, a reason. And generally with baking, the reason is the ingredients weren't at room temperature. They used a different size tin, 
or they haven't tested you they haven't checked their oven heat or they've just changed an ingredient they often I do. told you the other day my wife cooked my muffin recipe out of my first book and she rang me up in a panic saying they didn't work and of course I panicked because yeah. we printed 70,000 of them yeah. on the first run and she said oh but I didn't use the buttermilk or the oil because it seemed like a lot of oil and I went thank goodness for yeah. that but people do that all the they time do. It's do you, so strange. do you have a recipe in one of your books I know I always remember there was a famous story about the river cafe and the nemesis chocolate mm. cake that they printed and they forgot one ingredient and oh, apparently people that. used to ring up on a Friday night and say I've got your chocolate cake in the oven and it's not yeah. setting. I've had, <laughs> I've had, you know, mistakes. But I mean, luckily, I've had mistakes that sometimes um, are clearly a mistake. So, for example, I had one recipe for a, a masman curry which said 750 kilos of potatoes. Oh, that's and a I lot think, of potatoes. I think, it, I mean, I like, I like a potato or two. But, but that's cooking for the community. Um, but I think, you know, what I mean, you could sort of realise that was meant to be grams. Yeah. Um, but I have. You mean, I think I have had mistakes and we do put, you know, if there is a mistake, Little we rectify moment. it. Yeah. Um, and, but nothing that is really terrible. I mean, but I think, you know, it's, but still, I mean, there's, I've got one particular recipe that mo some people seem not to be able to work at all and others say, I make this, every, you know, I make this nonstop and it's my, what I call my quadruple chocolate loaf cake. And so it sounds good already. And it, I know. <laughs> and as, I said, as I said in it, that it's not just named after the bypass you'll need if you eat right, too many okay. of them. Um, but it's got, you know, it's got, I can't remember, cocoa, dark chocolate, a chocolate syrup, and I suppose it must have milk chocolate as well. I mean, yeah. it just goes on. It's very, very simple. And uh, I would say 80% of people say it's their most cooked cake and their most reliable cake. 20% cannot make it work, and I don't no, understand don't. why. But I'm going to go and cook it now just to see if it works <laughs> and I'll ring you and say but I, but I think sometimes maybe they're at a different altitude or something because of course obviously I don't I don't I think also write most, that into my books most home cooks too and I include my wife and she wouldn't be afraid to tell you that she's not a great cook she'll have something in the oven I mean she cooked one of Matt's recipes and she rang me and she said I don't know if it's cooked and I said but I don't know, read the, what does it say in the recipe? And she said, I read the recipe, but it leaves that bit up to I me. I try and say and that's what really to look hard. for. I try and say what yeah. to look for. Tap it and it wobbles or rather than, sort of Yes, thing. rather than just give yeah. it time. I, I do try and say what to look for. But as you know, it's, it, it's very hard. I mean, I'm always a bit torn because I want to make my recipes really, really precise. But at the same time, I don't want to make people feel they can't freestyle a bit. Yeah. Because really, I, but see again, Yotam said to me, when I was saying to him, I said, when I just do, because I've got, for example, like a really great um, like Moroccan vegetable pot in my new book. And I was saying, I'm really torn because I can't I just say what I would do at home, you know, two carrots, an aubergine. And he said, no, Nigella, you can't. Because like, you with two carrots could be, um, you could be saying they could be 200 grams, it could be 100 yeah. grams each. So totally what are you, different. you know, you've got to give away. And I do, but then I also feel, is it not better to say medium or large? But it's very hard to, because sometimes I think by giving a weight, I always try and give the size first it and the weight in brackets. Because I just don't want people to think yeah. that if they've got 150 grams of carrots, it's going to make a huge difference to whether they've got 250 if it's in a stew. Yes, it will make it a bit sweeter or a bit less sweet, but it, I mean, whereas obviously in my carrot cake recipe, I want to give the exact weight. So it, you can't always be consistent. So I, I sometimes thought, 
in trying to be as helpful as possible, am I then making people feel they've got to weigh everything? Yeah. I don't think so. That's why I, if the weight is crucial, I put the weight first. I said I can't be, don't make me consistent. If the weight is crucial, let me put the weight first. If the weight is just a helpful guide for people, let me put the size first and then the weight. I think most of the people are listening are quite pleased that you agonise obviously quite a lot about each so of your recipes. Much. I Can agonise and I go on and on and on. My name's Gary Megan and this is A Plate to Call Home. More from the delightful Nigella Lawson after the break. Stay with us. Where does the insecurity come from about... Oh, God, I get, I'm I, an anxious I, I, person. I'm, an anxious, anxious? I'm just an anxious person. Why? It's in my makeup. Have you always since you were a little yes. girl? Or, and yes. why was that? I don't know. I think... Um, do you know, I think we're slightly, you know, born the way we are. Um, and I... I want to get things right, and I do feel a great sense of responsibility. I, I'm more anxious, say, particularly with what I do now, in the sense that I have a great sense of responsibility because people are spending the money they earn on their supper, mm. and I don't want them to waste it. And I want them, it, you know, I don't want. To, I want them to be happy with what they end up with. I feel it's in, you give a bit of yourself when you write a recipe I, mean, I think it is like cooking for someone yeah. and so you and I want to make I want to make people happy and it makes me happy you you, you are know, very cooking. I mean you come from I mean come from a famous family I mean I remember your father Nigel Lawson being a, a Brit he was in the limelight you would have been in the limelight I presume and you were very successful when you were younger I mean you became deputy literary editor for the Sunday Times in 86 at 26 yeah. yes. Were you always under pressure to be a high achiever as a I young girl? Not, you know, I don't think I was, um, or I don't think, I mean, I felt under pressure, but it wasn't just that. I mean, I think that, pe generally speaking, I think people divide into uh, two sorts of people. I may be wrong. People who, um, you know, who want to be sex successful, I think they're either uh, goal-oriented or fear-driven. And I'm of the fear-driven, so I'm always terrified of doing something wrong. And that's what, you know, propels me forward. And I now I can't believe I'm so brave. I know it's not brave in terms of what people really do in life, but in terms of... Because I, I think that when you're young, I suppose you've got nothing to lose. Yeah. And so you... I sort of feel like, oh, well, you've got to make a mistake. I mean, I just sort of went for things that used to make me, I mean, used to make me very nervy. Wow, that's um, very brave. And I did that. So what were the um, points, I mean, people always talk about points in their life that changed the direction that they went. Do you remember stuff from when you were much younger that you went, that was integral, that was important, that was a game changer? I, I think the thing that was very important for me, um, I think um, getting into Oxford, um, because I felt I was, I knew that that meant uh, that I I, th I, know, I knew that I suppose with that mean show that that would my father would be that counted. He went to Oxford, um, and um, and you would have worked very hard to get into Oxford. You know, and then that was in the old days when you had to sit an exam, and that were you a good girl a at school? So naughty. In those days, you know, it was just, it was a bit like old-fashioned naughty. I mean, it was a bit, I, I just, I'm, I'm not good at authority. Had no... You'd be that. a great Australian, I you was, know that, because um, we hate authority. I'd love it. <laughs> I mean, a bit, and I just, I mean, for example, so I used to do well in the subjects that I liked, English, languages, Latin, 
and really badly in like, maths, geography, that sort of thing, and um, history that too much work. And I remember once my German teacher was married to the history teacher and she said, look, it really is ridiculous. You could do really well in history. You're just being completely lazy and you can, you keep coming to the bottom and you really shouldn't. So I said to Mr. Emerson, the history teacher, if I come top in the history exam, will you give me a Mars bar? And he said, yes. So I came top. I was given a Mars bar and then they were tearing their hair out because I came bottom again the next term once <laughs> I'd done that. Um, and so I wasn't good at school and I didn't really like it. Um, I was very, very shy child, and I always joked that I didn't talk till I was 19. Um, I, would, uh, I didn't really at home, and so when I got these reports, so I was very quiet at home, mm. um, and when I got these reports saying Nigella is completely, um, uh, you know, wild, and she is disruptive in class, and she is all that thing, and the, my parents thought, God, they've just muddled her up with the Another, wrong report. They've muddled her up with another. Oh, hopeless these teachers are. They've muddled her up with the wrong yeah. with the wrong pupil. But why? So why the two? I felt freer at school. Mm. I felt freer. I think some people just do. I think I, for whatever reason, I felt quite inhibited and in slightly tense at home yeah. when I was young. So mum and dad not watching, not feeling the pressure. I don't know. It was that. It was, you know, it was it was difficult. I mean, my mother had children very young. And it was a sort of different age when, you know, a lot of children should be seen and not heard. Yeah. Um, and whereas at school, although I didn't want to go to boarding school when I was sent there, and I was very miserable about it, and I, but actually, I I think I, I found it easier um, to be who I was away from home because I think in in I mean I'm very close to my um, siblings, so it's not. Uh, that, but I think that sometimes everyone has a role in a family and you can get too, I mean, it was really interesting that I was always talked about as the, which I am, you know, the shy, poetic, oversensitive one and very impractical, even though I was the only one who could change a plug, you know, because that was the role I was in. Yeah. And, um, but it's true that the others in my family are more, I, I would say, I would still get go back to being quieter I'm a yeah. chatterbox but, but being being, uh, being out there and confident and uh, confident in I the place more. that you have in the yeah. world doesn't make you good at what you do no it? I don't know but I'll tell you what changed a lot for me is as I say so in because I when I did the exam for Oxford I did in French and German and then I um, it's funny I have this habit of giving up things when I'm good at them so I got given this unconditional place in English which means because I've done well enough my exams they mm. write whatever happens if you do English and I thought well do you know what I don't want to talk to strangers about the books I love it's too private so I, I'll do languages instead I thought oh, was she mad you know telling that so I then had to sit the exam in languages and I did it in French and German and I just thought do you know what I've done that for an awful lot. I want to do Italian and, you know, I want to do it from scratch. And so I said I'd go to Italy in my year off and I pretended when I got it, they said, yes, but you've got to learn, you know, Italian properly. And I pretended I was going to go to the, you know, British Institute and learn Italian. In fact, I was a chambermaid um, in a pensione. <laughs> um, but I think going and I think for me, what really changed me was going to live in Italy. Um, I just... You know, I always wanted to be Italian, and that sort of Italian way of being, um, I, I, you know, I was bowled over by the food, the simplicity of the food, the everyone's attitude towards yeah. food. I loved the, the, the whole thing of being Italian. And also, having always been quite shy, um, I realised that speaking Italian, I developed a slightly more 
um, outgoing personality. Yeah. And that was really liberating. That's lovely to hear. Is it, and do you think it was because it was kind of in opposition to your conservative kind of family? My mother was, upbringing my or? mother was um, not particularly conservative, right. I have to say. I don't know. I think it's just that thing of going somewhere where you, people don't know everything about you. You, yeah. know, you haven't got your, your history. You know, yeah. wherever you're, you're brought up, you, you take your baggage with you. Or people look, you know, people very much um, judge you on your family. They and have a all frame that. of reference. And, and if you don't theirs. have that, and if it's completely yeah. different and you're making your own frame of reference, yeah. I think in a way everyone should do that a bit. And I think that's why a lot of people um, in uh, the UK like coming to Australia. Yeah. Because I think you come here and, you know, make. They haven't got people saying, oh, yeah, I remember your dad or I remember your mum. Even yeah. I, don't, I don't mean if your, your parents are well known. I don't mean that at all. Because generally speaking, you mix with people who've known your family forever. Don't you? Right. So it's that. Yeah. It's, it's not, nothing to do with being well known. I found well it known. when I came here. It was that yeah. frame of reference. People, people in Australia, especially in Melbourne, would say, what school did you go to? I said, oh, I went to school in the UK. Yeah. All of a sudden, conversation's over. Yeah. And they haven't got that to rely yes. on because they can't put you in that little... Pigeonhole, and I get that about Italy because mm. I always find the difference we've seen between Italy and France, for example. Yes. You go to a little city square, a little village square, and in France, it's very um, little hushed voices mm. and mumbled voices. Very, I love France, by the way. But then go to Italy to the same little village square, and it's noisy and people are shouting, and there's a certain kind of zest, isn't there? For, no, there really is. For and life. In a way, it was easier then because nowadays, because of um, you know the internet. Um, I think it'd be very difficult to immerse yourself in a foreign yeah. language because you're, you'd still be reading your Facebook, you're reading your friend's Facebook, you'd say, whereas actually, you know, the, the only, if I want, I, mean, I suppose I could have listened to BBC, but I don't even know if you could then. Yeah. And I didn't go out and buy English newspapers, one what young person buys newspapers, but also I didn't have the money for that. And um, so I really feel that um, I actually just, I lived, I lived in a world that was Italian, yeah. and um, I, the pensione I worked at, um, the owners um, had a farm in Arezzo, it was in, it was in uh, Florence, and they used to go there sometimes in the daytime, and they used to, his mother, La Nonna, was there, and she, we weren't allowed to be in the private bit but of course she got a bit lonely so she always said you know vieni qui vieni qui and she would I chat to her while she cooked so I watched her cook and just you know make yeah can you remember a things. thing that she cooked yes she used to do the... roast beef roast beef and it was really interesting because of course she thought she was doing an English recipe but what it was is that that wonderful way the Italians have of doing roast beef which is they sear it they sear it almost like a topside, thin little bit of topside in a pan, they sear it and they tuck rosemary and garlic with it and then they sort of not quite pot roast it with a teeny bit of red wine and it was so wonderful and the juice, I mean the gravy so intense by the end and um, left lovely and rare and I always laugh when people say Italians don't use butter because I remember her mashed potato which had, you know, North, it North Italians use yeah. a lot of butter. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, also it's so interesting watching her make pasta because, you know, in England people have quite a lot of pasta and the sauce it just completely drowns it. And we're talking a long time ago, you know, we're talking, oh gosh, that's, you know, almost 40 years ago, I hate to say 
No. You're yes. No, no, I don't Sorry. lie about my age. I don't know. I can't be bothered. And um, so, uh, and it was just seeing that real that delicate thing about, you know, the, actually the taste of the pasta is as important as the taste of the sauce. Yeah. And it was that thing that the Italians have of not using the, that many ingredients and but using the ones they do, uh, you know, using them with respect. And I think that I'd grown up in an England that was very much all about French cooking, which was different. So for me, it also, it was like a bit finding my own voice. Yeah, and it was a lot heavier back then. If yeah. you, the French food was yes. different to I mean, I haven't said that my mother was a wonderful cook. Can you remember the first thing that she cooked? No, but she used to get us to cook. Um, to help her. I had a sister she, who died young, but she she was 16 months younger than me. When we were I mean, really young, my mother would get us to um, stand by the so stove, you know, stirring a hollandaise. Not, it wouldn't be like one you make in a, a, mm. in a restaurant, but one we would make and um, topping and telling beans and making mayonnaise. My mother was always a bit, um, my mother got lost, could lose her temper quite easily. And I remember this being nerve-wracked making mayonnaise. So one would whisk the egg yolks and the other one would be pouring the oil. And you you know, you, you know, that thing of, you had to put, you know, you making sure that you poured the oil slowly enough and having to whisk fast enough. And it was always very fraught, but we did both, you know, we did learn to cook. Yeah, she was, I don't want to really talk about it unless you do, mm. but your mum suffered from depression. It was quite mm. a turbulent childhood yeah. at some level. Well, it was, you know, she was, she did, she did, she was, yeah, she did suffer from depression. It is a kind of family thing, her family. And yeah. I've, you know, I've inherited that, but I, I also think often people who get depressed also can get enormous joy yeah. from life as well. And yeah. I think uh, maybe cooking is about that as well, because I think it's about taking pleasure in the small things every day rather than waiting for something monumental to happen. Yeah. And there are a lot of people, I mean, I have depression in my family too, mm. so I recognize yeah. it quite easily. And it's, um, you know, for some people, yeah. You know, medicate. It's like Stephen Fry, for example. Mm. You know, oh, so many you know, medication yeah. is not. He can't take it because he enjoys the highs yeah. and will accept the lows with it. But for others, it's almost impossible. Isn't yeah. It? So I think so, and I think everyone has to find their their own way yeah. through it. And there isn't. There often feels like there isn't a way through it. And I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, the novelist Matt Haig is very good on all this. And I think that for a lot of people, cooking does help them. Yes. Yeah, and I think that. It gives you a, a sort of quiet moment sometimes that which is why I think that's why maybe I so often stress about not to have cooking to impress because I think that the sort of people who are helped by cooking don't keep cooking just for when they've got people coming over because yeah. I think sometimes you need to cook you need to cook for yourself in yeah. order to learn how to cook that because I, that's what I always say to people because you know what if you cook for yourself um, you won't stress so much about it if something goes wrong and then you'll learn more from it because actually feeling that you're being judged when you cook is not pleasant. Yeah, not nice it, at all. You know, it isn't pleasant. Yeah, and I think that's so, why professionals you know, find it difficult to switch off and enjoy yeah. cooking at home because I they're for so. very different reasons. As a professional, yeah. it's all, you know, time and pressure and delivery and it's very uh, process driven. Whereas yes. at home, it's, and I've learned that as I've got older, at home it's not that at all. Mm. I do have time limits though. I think I can do everything in half an hour or everything in two hours if I'm entertaining and that doesn't work. No, but I like pottering about. I like pottering about, putting something in the oven, taking it out, giving it a bit of a stir. 
with a glass of wine or two. Yeah. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Zwolenski, executive producer Jamie Shue, audio production is Darcy Thompson and special thanks to Imogen Thomas for all the research. 